suspect you for our victims. And remember, if there's a hazard or dangerous situation, move yourself to a position of comfort. We've run pulled over to the police. and found out that they were in fact trafficked and they were in fact slaves. These little kids are on this boat. They are not fed. They are abused beyond imagination. This is a girl. Whenever something like this comes, I imagine in my mind that girl is found. We have operations all over the world, rescuing people from slavery. Because today there are criminals who abuse children, sell girls. How old is she? 12. How much? 30. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy. And force families into slavery. Criminals prey on the easiest target, the world's poor, because they expect no one to defend them. But today, there are thousands of people gathering to seek justice for those in slavery. We are a group of lawyers, counselors, activists, and supporters. We are called International Justice Mission. Together, we form the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. But slavery won't come to an end until criminals know they can't get away with it. So we partner with local police to arrest and prosecute criminals. This sends a message to slave owners. We will not go away. We stay with the survivors until they are healed, until they are free. Natulungan po ako ng IJM sa pamamigitan po na sa case ko, sa pagtulong po nila na ma-overcome ko po yung, yung fear. Each year, we rescue thousands of slaves and protect millions around the world. We are transforming how justice systems protect their citizens. To those who are still enslaved, we promise to find you. We will get you home to your families so you can have the freedom you deserve. everybody. It's good to see you. And for those of you that uh, remember my bald head, it's good to be back with you. Um, I don't know if it says more about me or Greg that I keep getting to come back up here. So 
Um, I'm going to hope it's me, and it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I love Woodland Hills, uh, such a special place in my heart. Um, I'm here this weekend as part of actually a broader event that's taking place all over the Twin Cities. There's about, there's over 10 churches this morning that are focusing on the work of International Justice Mission and God's Heart for Justice. Um, there's actually a, a concert this night, an art music justice tour that's taking place. And um, you can just go online to just Google IJM Art Music Justice Tour and you can get all the details and we'd love for you to join us. It's good that I'm here on this uh, final weekend of the series that you've been doing on justice. And whenever we talk about justice, oftentimes what happens in the church is that, you know, there's always that type of person that's really into justice, and so they get really excited about it. And then the other types of people that kind of aren't so much into justice just kind of grit their teeth and wait for it to be over so they can quit feeling guilty about all the injustice of the world. And so the thing about justice, though, that I want to point out this morning and how I kind of want to just slide into this message that has to do with slavery and some tough things is to point out from the beginning that whenever you talk about justice, it's really not uh, a conversation on justice as a Christian as much as it is just simply a conversation on discipleship. Because discipleship is really learning how to just walk in the footsteps of Jesus and to be passionate about the things that Jesus is passionate about. And so therefore, for every single disciple in the world who's ever lived, the question that we have to constantly ask ourselves over and over again is just, am I interested in the things that Jesus is interested in? Are my passions the same as Jesus' passions? Are we growing closer together in our mindset, in our thinking, or am I a distant, uh, far away person who doesn't know anything about what Jesus cares about? And so when we talk about the things that Jesus is passionate about and the things that he cares the most about, there's really a couple of things that are at the heart of his passion that oftentimes we kind of seem to overlook. And the first thing that he's really passionate about is just the world. And when we talk about the world, most of us assume readily that that's something that we are very familiar with. Like Jesus is passionate about the world, I get that. But the truth is, is that when we think of Jesus being passionate about the world with, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son, and we all know that, and every crazy lunatic with no shirt on in the middle of the freezing cold winter holding up a sign behind a field goal that says John 3.16 has told the world like God is passionate about the world. But most of us reduce the world down to our own small existence within the world. And so the world becomes about my world and the things that I'm interested in and the things that matter to me in the world. And, but the world, I mean, it's a lot, lot bigger than my experience of it. The world, when you think about it, has over 7 billion people in it. And out of those 7 billion people living on the planet today, there's over 6,500 different spoken languages in the world. That's a lot of language. There's a lot of food in the world that comes from all sorts of various cultures. It's the reason why when you go out to eat at night, you ask questions like, do you want Mexican, Italian, Indian? What kind of food do you want to go have? And so there's all sorts of flavors and colors and sights and sounds and smells and all of this multifaceted, beautiful sort of mosaic of culture that makes up the world is what God is passionate about. He's into all of of it, and it's much bigger than my little experience of it. Now, the things that I'm kind of passionate about, when I really stop and think about it, is, you know, I'm passionate about things that 
affect my life. Like I'm passionate about the NFL. I'm passionate about my fantasy football team. When the draft happens recently, I get excited about the implications for my fantasy football league this coming year because that's what I'm really into, right? And I'm into my wife and I'm into my kids. I'm into my books. I'm into all sorts of things. But really, at the end of the day, what I'm most into and what nobody had to teach me to be into is me. I mean, I'm into me. I mean, you can't imagine how much I'm into me. And I'm guessing it's the same for most of you because, you know, you just think about it. How much time do we spend each day thinking about us? Like, I wake up and I start thinking of me right away. Hmm, I'm awake. How did I sleep? Wonder, oh, I'm hungry. Wonder what I'll have for breakfast. Wonder what I'm going to do today. Wonder what's, I mean, you have no idea how much time I spent looking in the mirror this morning getting my hair ready to come. I mean, I'm just into me, right? And I think Jesus gets it. I mean, he was a man just like I'm a man. But the thing is, Jesus wants me to be a man like him. And he wants me to be passionate about what he's passionate about. But when you consider that God loves the world and that Jesus is passionate about the world, it doesn't take much, though, to begin to ask questions like, well, if Jesus cares so much about the world, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much suffering that exists? Why do we live in a world in which 25,000 children a day will die of starvation? That means today, 25,000 children will cease to exist in their human experience because they will have simply starved to death because they didn't have enough to eat. There's over one and a half billion people on planet Earth who have no access to health care of any kind. These aren't people who are concerned about the election and the implications for Obamacare. They're not worried about whether or not their insurance plan has their primary physician on it. They just have no access to health care. When their kids get a fever, there is simply no Advil to bring the fever down. They have nothing. There's over a million kids living on the street every single day. And so when we see the world faced with so much suffering, the question becomes, how is it believable to the world that God cares for the world when there's so much suffering in the world? And the answer comes from the scriptures. The answer comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 5, here's what Jesus says. He says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. So when the world wants to know that God is good, it should see it in the church. And when you take that passage of Scripture and you bring it into the world that you live in and you kind of remove it from just the precious moments, magnets and things like that where it's just a nice little verse, oh, I'm the light of the world. But you really say, what does it mean to be the light of the world? What it really means is, is that you are the answer to the darkness because the light of Christ shines through the church. And so when we're the answer to the darkness, when we are the light of the world and we take that seriously, then we realize that God has called us into being part of his plan to redeem the world. 2 Corinthians tells us this as well. In 2 Corinthians, we read these words. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. 
And so for thousands of years now, Christians have gone out into the darkest places of the earth and they have brought the light of Christ into those dark places. And so we find in the world that where there are people who are hungry, the church has come and has brought food. When people need shelter, we've built shelter for them. When people need water, we, bring, we, we build wells for people. Whenever people are without medical care, we go on medical mission trips and we go up and down rivers and we give immunizations and we provide medication and we do all all sorts of things because we're shining light into the dark places of the world because that's what the church is called to do. However, there's another form of suffering that exists in the world and it doesn't exist because people are simply hungry or without access to health care or clean water or any of those sorts of things that we might look on and just say, ah, it's just, I guess, bad luck that I have these things because I hit the lottery on life. And they were born in a place that they don't have access. These people are a fully different category who are suffering. And they are suffering because they have an oppressor. They have someone who abuses their power. And they are suffering because of what the Bible calls injustice. Now, when you hear the word injustice, it's one of those words in our society that can take on so many meanings that once it has all sorts of meanings, it really has no meaning. Injustice, though, in the Bible, it's not like what I think of injustice. Injustice for me is typically things just like my own small world that I want to live in. Same thing with my injustice. It's like when I wait in line forever in the exit line to get onto the on-ramp, and all the other cars are playing by the exit line rules. And then the one car at the last minute comes up past all the other cars and then just kind of moseys his way in. And I think like, man, what an injustice. Like I waited forever and you didn't wait. And that sort of thinking is kind of what occurs for most of us when we're just living our own little existence all the time. But in the Bible, injustice is a very, very specific kind of sin. Injustice, to define it for you, is simply this. Injustice is whenever someone abuses their power to take from others, to rob and steal from you the good things that God has intended for your life, namely your life and your liberty and your freedom and your dignity, that's injustice. And the Bible speaks very clearly about this sort of injustice. We read about this in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we read, Then I looked again, or chapter 4, I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressor was power. But they had no one to comfort them. You, you see in the scriptures a, a great example of this in the life of King David. A man who has great power. And he takes this power that he has and he uses it to abuse others. When we see Bathsheba and she's bathing on the roof. And David looks and he says, I want her for myself. And so he uses his power to have Bathsheba's wife, or husband Uriah killed. So that he can take what Uriah had for himself. Because he has power and it's injustice that takes place when King David sins in this sort of way. We read about this again in the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 10 we read, They lie in wait near the villages. From ambush they murder the innocent. Their eyes watch in secret for their victims. Like a lion in cover they lie in wait. And they lie in wait to catch the helpless. They catch the helpless and they drag them off in their nets. This is a picture of someone who's lying in wait, waiting at any moment to jump out and ambush somebody 
and take from them their life or their possessions. It's a great act of injustice. And the scripture sees this and it's very clear that this is a particular sort of sin against humanity because it's the abuse of the power that God has given us to do good with. Now, in our life, you know, here in the West, most of us are living pretty safe lives, and so we're not really thinking all the time in terms of these sort of Psalm 10 people waiting to jump out and ambush us. And so we typically reduce these down to some sort of spiritual thing, like, oh, this must be about sin. Like, sin is waiting at any moment to jump out and get me, and so I have to be on guard. And so we think in terms of this is like a spiritual thing, because we don't really experience on the way to the grocery store nine times out of ten somebody waiting to jump out and get us. But the truth is, according to the World Bank, four and a half billion people live completely outside of the protection of the law. That means that there are laws that exist, but the laws are not enforced. And because the laws are not enforced, these people have no protection whatsoever. And so for over half the world's population, the idea of waking up in the morning and going to work or going to school carries with it this sort of threat that the psalmist writes about in Psalm 10, which is at any moment, someone may abuse me with their power and there's nothing that I'll be able to do about it because there's going to be no protection from the law. This is the way the world is living. And throughout the world today, we see that there is significant problems in the realm of human slavery like never before in human history. In, In the world today, there are currently 36 million slaves on planet Earth. These are people who are owned by other human beings who abuse their power. They jumped out in ambush and took them for themselves like the psalmist wrote about. 36 million slaves at this moment in history, to put that in perspective for you, if you took the entire 400-year transatlantic slave trade, added all the slaves together during that 400 years, it would not equal the number of slaves in existence right now today. That's the significance of slavery. And yet, we assume slavery ended a long time ago with Abraham Lincoln, right? but it exists in greater numbers than ever before. And in our work at International Justice Mission, we see this sort of Psalm 10 injustice happen all the time. And I want to introduce you to a couple of people to kind of help you see what I'm talking about that me and my colleagues at, at IJM have been able to see God do something with over the years. The first person I want to introduce you to is a, a young girl whose name is Shama. Shama was 10 years old when we met her, but three years before that, when she was seven years old, her mother was pregnant with a second child and soon to give birth, and she became very sick, and there were major complications, and Shama's mom was going to die as a result of these complications. And so her dad needed to go and get a doctor to come to this rural village to provide medical care for Shama's mother. But when he went to go get a doctor, he discovered that the cost of the doctor would be $35, and this man and the rest of the village lived off of about $1 a day. So this is like over a month's worth of income, and no one else in the village has the money. His parents don't have the money. It's not like they can go borrow the money from a friend or a family member or get it from the benevolence fund at church. And so out of desperate need, he goes to a money lender who gives him the $35 in exchange for his daughter, Shama. 
And so Shama has now been sold for $35. She's now the possession of another human being. He owns her as his slave, and she is forced to sit, as you see in this picture that was up there with a basket, where she's sitting rolling cigarettes for 16 or so hours every day of her life. While other kids are going to school, she's rolling cigarettes. While other kids are growing up and hoping and dreaming of one day getting married, she knows that if she were to ever have children, those children would become the possession of this slave owner just as she is. And if she doesn't meet the quota and roll the necessary number of cigarettes every day, she'll be violently beaten. This is the life of Shama, and it is the life of millions of other slaves all over the world just like her. In India alone today, there are over 13 million slaves, more than any other country in the world. Another girl I want to introduce you to is a young girl named Jyoti. Jyoti was 14 years old when she ran away from home due to an abusive relationship. And as she ran away from home because of the abuse, she fell into the hands of two very nice women, it seemed. These nice women said, come with us to the city and we'll get you a job. My brother owns a restaurant and you can get away from this chaos. And so she hops on the train with these women. She's 14 years old. You know, not a lot of common sense when you're 14. Gets on a train, takes off with these women. They offer her some tea. The tea was drugged. And so when she woke up two days later, she had been sold into a brothel for $250. Now she is the possession of another human being. She is owned as a tool. And there, owned by this man, he says to her, you now work for me and you are going to serve the men who come and pay to be with you. And she says to him, you can't make me do this. I'm only 14 years old. There's no way. And so she's locked in a dark cell where she's beaten day after day with electric cords, metal pipes, plastic rods, all sorts of things. She's drugged and forced to drink heavy amounts of alcohol until finally she breaks and she gives in. And once she gives in, from the first day until the last day of her life, she will be forced to sell her body to other men. And these women who've been trafficked in this brothel and the women who've been trafficked all over the world, on average, service 25 to 30 different men every day. That's rape. 25 men raping them a day. Paying so that some other person can get rich because he owns them. This is what we see taking place all over the world. It's injustice. And when we see this, we're left to ask the question, well, how do we respond to this? I mean, how is it that we're supposed to look at this and make sense of all this chaos and this madness? I mean, what is it that, that God thinks of all this injustice And the answer is, is that God hates this injustice. We see this in the same psalm, in Psalm chapter 10. We'll look at it again. It says this, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. God is in heaven, and as the afflicted, as as the shamas and the jyotis of the world, cry out to God. He doesn't turn a deaf ear. He's not far and distant and removed so that they're left to themselves, but rather he hears them, and he encourages them, and he listens to their cry. He's a God who defends the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. The answer to how God feels about the injustice of the world is that God hates injustice. Now, we say, well then, if God hates injustice, then what's his plan? I mean, what's he going to do about it? 
How's he going to deal with the injustice of the world? And the answer is, you're the plan. You are the plan. The church of Jesus is God's plan for injustice. And he doesn't have any other plan. The plan for the world is that the body of Christ would be the body of Christ. We see this all throughout Scripture, that God's plan to deal with the injustices of the earth are through his people. In Micah chapter 6, we read these very words. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Let me just pause for a moment. Time. You know the word require? I know this is sometimes when we read our Bible, we come across those certain words where we then go, oh, I can't wait for the pastor to preach on it so he can do the word study and hopefully help me find like a loophole on this one, right? So uh, the Hebrew word for this uh, is, is actually, it translates into English as require. Now, here's what that means. That's like, so just so you know, parents, okay, like when you're saying to your kids when they come home and they say, I don't want to do my homework, and you say, oh, but your teacher requires this of you, and you understand that that doesn't mean the teacher suggested, like, hey, you want to do homework tonight? This is great. Go for it. If you don't, it's all right. We won't count it against you. Like, it means, no, you have to do this. So what does God require? He requires that you do justice, that you love kindness, and you walk humbly with your God. We see this again in Isaiah. Same exact principle. Learn to do good. How? By seeking justice, rescuing the oppressed, defending the orphan, and pleading for the widow. God's plan to bring about justice, to show the world that he is good and gracious and merciful and kind, is to use you and me as the body of Christ to be the visible representation of Christ on earth and to bring justice to those who have no justice. Now, when you hear this, it's very easy to stop and say, wait a minute, but these are some staggering numbers here. You're right. I mean, they are. 36 million slaves? You know, 800,000 to 1 million children a year are lost to the sex trafficking industry. A million a year. There's over 200,000 people that live in the city of St. Paul. Just imagine if you took that and every four years, the entire population of St. Paul as children just disappeared from the face of the earth. The world would step up and say, what is going on? And they take notice. These are the numbers. And when you see those numbers and you hear these stories like Joti and Shama, it leaves you saying, but wait a minute. What am I, I mean, what am I going to do? Like, I just came to church this morning. I didn't know they were going to bring this guy to come tell me all this bad stuff and then throw the require word on me. I mean, how am I supposed to do something about this? Like, I'm just me, right? I just, I teach school. I work at this job. I, I go to school at this university. I mean, you want me to be like the plan for the world? You just described the most overwhelming need in the world. And if you haven't looked at me, you haven't realized that I'm about the most unqualified person with about the most inadequate resources to do something about this. How am I supposed to do something? And in this moment, you know what we do? We just take a moment and pause and we just remember Jesus. Because there's a story 
that I think is very profound. And it's the story of Jesus when he feeds these 5,000 men and a bunch of more women and children on top of that. And you'll remember how the story goes. It goes something like this. He'd been teaching all day. The disciples looked out. They were tired and they said, hmm, Jesus, the people are hungry. Let's send them away to get something to eat. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, ah, you perceive correctly. There's an overwhelming need here. Over 5,000 people are hungry. Why don't you feed them? So, Wait a minute, Jesus. We'll remind you what we just said in case you have some sort of Jesus forgetfulness. There's 5,000 of them. We're just a few, like 12 of us. One of them, and we don't even know if he's one of us, but there's 12 of us, and we can't do anything about this. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? They say, well, hold on. So they run off, and they get together. They form the first meal committee in a church, and they say, what do we got? And so they put their heads together, and they come back, and they say, hey, Jesus, we figured it out. Here's what we've got. We've got five loaves of bread, and we have two fish. So we don't want to insult you, Jesus, with your intelligence, but that equals seven things, and there's 5,000 people. So Jesus, like, our idea was kind of better. Let's send them away. Now, this is what the church still does today, isn't it? Jesus leads the church and says, I want you to do this. And the church, ah, Jesus, he, you don't live in two things. We have the internet today. We don't we got knowledge you don't have. We can't do it that way. We have buildings and programs and mortgages, and it's not the same as when you were just running around in your robe and sandals. And so we have a different way of doing things. Well, disciples have always been telling Jesus what to do. And so they tell Jesus, send them away. Our plan was better. And Jesus says to them, hey, give what you have to me. Just let that sink in for a moment. Give it to me. Let me have it. You know what Jesus is saying to them? Will you trust me enough to simply give what you have to me, even though it's inadequate, even though the need is great, and will you trust me with your inadequate resources so that I can meet the overwhelming need? Because as disciples, you're simply on the hook for obedience, but I'm on the hook for the miracle. That's what disciples of Jesus are called to, is simply obedience. And so what Jesus is saying to them, and what he says to us, and what he said to every disciple who's ever lived is simply this. When you look out at a world, and the world is filled with overwhelming needs, and you become focused on your inadequate resources, in that moment, the disciple of Jesus is meant to shift their focus, not from the overwhelming needs to their inadequate resources, but from their overwhelming needs to their overwhelming Savior. Because Jesus is more overwhelming than every overwhelming need. And the question is, will we marvel at Jesus and his abilities or will we be crippled by what we see in ourselves in the needs of the world? And so Jesus simply says this, take your next to nothing and give it to me and I'll turn it into everything. And so at IJM, sometimes we get to experience this in profound ways. So in the case of Shama, you know, we learned about Shama's case and so an IJM attorney took up her case and began to pull on the string and began to unravel a whole mess and discovered that there were about 10 other slaves 
that this man owned. And so we put together a case, and we were ready to go on a Friday and deliver this case to the court. And as we prepared these 11 cases to bring to the judge in the process of that, we began to find that the more we pulled on the string, it got worse, and we uncovered an entire slavery syndicate of 494 children. And so we brought these 11 cases that we had prepared to the judge on the Friday, and we were told by the court, the judge is gone for the weekend, come back on Monday, and we're going to hear your case. And so over the weekend, IJM said, we've got to find a church, and we've got to pray, and we've got to seek God, and this is an area where only 2% of the population are Christians. And so we go to this church on a Sunday, and we're there, and we just want to pray and ask God to intervene. And we get there, and we're welcomed in, and they say, and guess what? We have a guest speaker today, and so we're glad you're with us. Our pastor's not preaching. We have a guest speaker. And the guest speaker turned out to be the judge. And the judge happened to love Jesus and happened to be one of those Micah 6-8 kind of dudes who wanted to seek justice. And so come Monday morning, he didn't hear our 11 cases. He freed the whole syndicate of 494 kids. Every one of them were sent back to school and back into the life that children should have. You remember Joe T? Well, I'll tell you what happened with Joe T is that she was in a brothel being forced into the most horrific forms of evil abuse every day of her life when she met a little girl there who'd also been sold into a brothel. And the girl said to her, and remember Joe T's a Hindu, and so there are millions of gods to pray to as a Hindu, but Jyoti, as she's in this brothel, meets a girl, and the girl says to her, you know, I've heard there's another god that maybe we could try to pray to. This god's name is Jesus. And so Jyoti begins to do the only thing that she knows to do, which is just to say in desperation in the situation that she's in, Jesus, will you save me? Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. For seven days, she prays, Jesus, save me. And on the seventh day, an IJM undercover investigator discovers her in the brothel. We put together with the local law enforcement there in India a raid. We go into the brothel. The local law enforcement is capable of bringing her out into safety. Jyoti gets put into Christian aftercare. And there in Christian aftercare, she actually gives her life to Christ, becomes a Christian. And for Jyoti, the concept of Jesus is my Savior didn't simply mean he saved me to go to heaven one day. It meant that Jesus had shown up in the darkest hell of her life on earth and rescued her through the body of Christ. So when Joti thinks about Jesus, she thinks of the church in action because the church showed up. So Joti then discovers that we're going to go back and we're going to do another rescue operation. And she says, I want to go with you. What drives someone back into the hell they've come from other than love? Redeemed, Christian, God's passion deep at work in their heart. She goes right back into that brothel with us and helps us to rescue another young girl whose name is Kalindi. And so Kalindi's brought out, and when Kalindi comes out, she has this moment where she says, listen, I can't believe you came to rescue me, and it's great and wonderful, but right before you came, they were tipped off, and they hid some of the girls inside of a secret panel, a hole in the side of the wall. And if you'll take me back in with you right now, I'll go back in and I'll show you where they're at. And so Kalindi leads us right back into the brothel. And what you're going to see now 
is actual IJM investigative footage of the moment of this rescue in which these girls were brought out of the hole in the wall. This isn't a movie. It's not reality television. These are young girls created in the image of God who are deeply loved by Him, full of dignity, and desperately in need of men and women of goodwill to come to their aid. And God says to the church, you are my plan to rid the world of injustice. You are called to be like my son Jesus. You are called to love what he loves, to be passionate about what he's passionate about, and to do what he does. On the other side of this, you say, okay, so what, what can I do? What do I do? Well, the first thing you do is, is don't be overwhelmed by the great need. Let it be sobering, but don't be overwhelmed by it because the light will not defeat, or the, the darkness will not defeat the light. The light will win. So don't be overwhelmed and say it's hopeless. Trust and believe that it's not hopeless, but also realize that you've got to be part of this thing because this is the way that God has established the world in His plan to bring about redemption is through Christians living out kingdom-oriented lives. And so what I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you to join me in doing one particular thing this morning. When you came in, you were handed a card that looks like this that says, pray with us. And this card is how I want to invite you to join the struggle for justice. Now you say, okay, so you told me there's 36 million slaves in the world and you showed up with a piece of cardboard. That's what you're going to do? Yes, I showed up with an opportunity, an opportunity for you to remember this morning, to remember just how powerful prayer actually is, an opportunity for you to remember this morning just how amazing Jesus really is. And I want to invite you to pray with us what we'll do is this. Right now, I want you to get out a pen or a pencil. Uh, if you don't have one, that's okay. There's some outside that you can use at the information desk, but you don't even have to go there. You can just get out lipstick and mascara right now or prick your finger with blood and write. Then it's like really official. It's a covenant, okay? And I want you to complete this card. Put your name, phone number, address, most importantly, your email address because we'll sell it to Google. That's how we fund ourselves, okay? <laughs> You get all kinds of spam. No, I want you to put all this down because then here's what's going to happen. Every week on Saturday, like clockwork at 10 a.m., 
IJM's going to send you an email, and the email is going to contain a couple things. One, it's going to contain a great update of God's work of rescue around the world, and you're going to get a chance to rejoice and praise God and sing glory to his name. But the other thing is this. It's going to give you an opportunity to pray for about four or five of the most pressing needs around the world related to justice. And so here's what I'm inviting you to do, is to get this card, complete it on the way out, hand it to the ushers, And then when you start receiving these emails every Saturday to join me and others around the world in pausing to fall on your knees before God and to beg God to move through the body of Christ to bring justice to the world because he loves the brokenhearted and seeks them who are the most desperate to redeem them and bring them to himself. And so this is your opportunity to fall on your knees every week and say, this is how I join the battle. I join the battle by being a person who sees the overwhelming needs and they're gonna come to you in an email and you're gonna go, whoa, those are huge needs. And then you're gonna drop to your knees and you're gonna say, wow, but the Jesus I serve is greater still than all the needs. And so Jesus intervene, Jesus intervene. So this is your chance It's your opportunity to engage in the battle by being people whose knees are calloused and whose lives are secure because they recognize that every effort in Christ isn't a failed effort. It's one that brings power to bear upon the earth. And so we don't have to look at the world and say this is just the way it is. This is your chance to help end slavery so that one day when your grandkids say to you hey you were alive when there were slaves on the earth you say yeah I was they say what was that like you say it was horrible you say but why aren't there any slaves today and you say because the church of Jesus rose up in great power and I was part of it and your kids will see you as a hero Because you didn't stand by when the world was desperately in need of the church to rise up in power and remember the privilege it had to pray and engage in the struggle for justice. Amen. Father, you've invited us to be part of the work. It's the way that your world works. You wanted it that way. You designed it that way. May we be faithful to join you in the struggle for justice. Lord, convict us to be men and women of prayer who seek justice and do good and walk in humility. And more than all, that we love like Christ, love this world. In Jesus' name, amen.